0: This podcast contains details about sexual abuse and murder. Listener discretion
1: is advised. In the last two episodes, we discussed the dynamic between Heath and Jack spanning several years. We also covered the events leading up to the night of the Stocks family murders. In this episode, we will be discussing the investigation into the murders, including what was potentially missed or should have been called into question. We will be hearing from Charles Peckett,
0: Kip Kiso, Heath's aunts Bonnie and Janice, as well as Mark Buffalo. Mark is a reporter from the Lone area, and we connected through a mutual friend. We were very excited to talk with him because he was in the area at that time, working as a reporter, and he had that first-hand experience. He could not have been nicer to talk with.
2: My name is Mark Buffalo. I am the sports editor of The Log Cabin Democrat in Conway, Arkansas. I previously worked for the Lone Oak Democrat newspaper from 1995 through 2014. I have lived in Lone Oak County my entire life. Uh, I I was born and raised south of Carlisle, uh, graduated from high school in 1990, uh, went to the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville for five years. And then, uh, of course, you know, still lived in Carlisle. Uh, I moved to Lone Oak in uh, late 1999 after my uh, marriage uh, to my late wife, Linda, who was a teacher in Lone Oak.
1: We're back at January 17th, 1997, which is the night of the Stocks family murders. The investigation of the crime scene is underway, and Heath has been found at Kelly's and taken in for questioning. And just kind of trying to put myself in that atmosphere, I feel like it must have been very shocking for a triple homicide to occur in such a small town. You have to think there's, what,
0: 3,000 people in that town, and they probably don't see a lot of murder investigations, let alone a triple homicide.
1: And in a community where everybody knows everybody, I would imagine a lot of people are trying to find out what's happened, what's going on. Is it somebody that I know? And you know how people always have those police scanners and they listen into stuff? I can imagine there was a lot of that going on, too. Oh, yeah. And police lights on your street. You're always looking out the window. Again, with the small town and everybody knowing everybody, I can imagine the neighbors are calling somebody they know and just a real life game of telephone. Which is apparent when we start looking at the crime scene and how that investigation unfolded. One of the things we noticed right off the bat when we're looking through the FOIA paperwork is just how many people were in and out of the crime scene that night and the following day. The log is seven pages
0: long, showing people that entered and exited the crime scene after it happened. So between the hours of 10.56 p.m. that night on January 17th, all the way until the next day at 2.09 p.m.
1: And they weren't just in one time and out. These people were coming and going. They were leaving and coming back with more people and... There's not really any record of what they were doing in the house during that time. You see people enter,
0: exit, enter, exit. Some they had logged in as entering but never exiting. One of those, oddly enough, was the prosecutor, Larry Cook. It shows him entering at 12.53 a.m. but never exiting, which I'm, obviously he did exit at some point, but it's not logged. So that kind of shows I'm not quite sure that they were keeping that good of track of who went in and out and what they did. I don't know a lot of the legalities of who should be showing up at a crime scene or not, but to me it just kind of stood out oddly that the town prosecutor would show up at
1: at a murder scene at 12:53 a.m. It's definitely something that makes you wonder a little bit if it is normal or should he have been there? We
0: reached out to Larry Cook, but he did not respond to our request for comment. Because we were curious if that's something that is normal or not, we went ahead and reached out to Charles Peckett to get his insight on it and to see if that's something that is out of the norm.
3: It's unusual, but I mean, they do come to a crime scene. Somebody had to have called him and told them, and he he felt like he needed to come out there.
0: So you have the crime scene that should be secured, but yet you have all of these people in and out in and out repeatedly. Something else that stood out to us when we looked at the FOIA documents was there was no record of a search warrant until January 24th. So you have people in and out of the crime scene with no search warrant, going through things, and then for seven days after that, still no search warrant, until it's issued by the Arkansas State Police on January 24th, 1997.
1: In addition to all the people in and out and the lack of a search warrant, There is no log of what these people were doing while they were in the house. They should have been keeping some kind of record of what they touched, what they moved, some kind of running document of the crime scene, how it looked when they first got there, and what might have been manipulated by law enforcement or investigators. And there's nothing like that. So Charles Peckett, who we've talked to extensively throughout the podcast, was not involved in
0: this investigation, but he has years and years of knowledge And so we asked him if he would take a look at the FOIA documents with us and give his insight on how the investigation was handled and how things went down and kind of see what he thought, if things were handled correctly or or how he might have done it differently. So when I was reviewing the FOIA documents from the Arkansas State Police, they talk about an execution of a search warrant. And that search warrant wasn't executed until January 24th, 97, which was seven days after Is that normal that it would take that
3: long? No, that's not normal. But what I've read on this, I can't find a search warrant that was issued for that house when the officers and stuff went into that house. You're supposed to have a search warrant before you can go into it under certain circumstances. They could have went in to see if there was anybody else that needed medical help or anything like that that was in the house. At that point, they kinda needed to back out of the house and get a search warrant.
0: Yeah, because it looks like from that log record, there were, I counted, there were at least 20 people in and out of that house that night.
3: I counted the number of people that were in and out of that house and from the notes that I have, and it shows that some of these are some of the same people. But there was 190 persons that went in and out of that house during a 15 hour period. And that includes officers from three different departments that was go- that had gone in there. That's unusual. Usually you wanna contain your crime scene. You don't wanna have a bunch of people in and out of the, of, of that particular location. You wanna contain it and do your job and go in there and do your work. But there there was 190 people that went in and out of that house. I'd like to say, you know, that on a homicide case or any, any case that you have, you're going to do it based on your rules and regulations of your department and how you've been trained and stuff to do these. I was trained not to have a lot of people in and out of your crime scene because you want to maintain that crime scene and you want to maintain the integrity of the crime scene and not let a bunch of people in and out of the, out of that area. Even though it's unusual to have three people that was killed that night, that's unusual to have that. There was, like I said, three departments that was in there and 190 people were in and out of that, was in and out of that, uh, crime scene. Now, Granted, the 190 people is some of the same people leaving and coming back again and bringing somebody new with them to go through the crime scene. That's not maintaining the integrity of that crime scene. And that had to have been awful to have done that inside there with these people marching in and out of there.
0: Is it odd to have that many people going in and out, like they leave and go get somebody and come back, and then you have three different departments?
3: Yes, very unusual. It's very unusual that, I mean, you're going to maintain that crime scene. At my department, if you are logged on a log sheet, which these 190 people are logged, you would have to write a report to say why you're there, what you did while you were there, what you touched while you were there, and anything that you did while you were at that crime scene. You have to write a report on that. Because that is questioned by the defense attorneys by saying, why were you there? What were you doing? And at least it'll be logged in in the report why they were there and what they were doing. And another thing it's going to do is it's going to keep people away so they don't have to write a report. I did not see any reports. Now, that is something that is, our department does that, North Little Rock does that. When we go to court, we make sure but there's a report in the case file that states that they were at the crime scene or in the crime scene. And what did they do at that crime scene? I mean, there's a report on every single person. This would have been a book. Easily. Yes. Yes. With, with 190 people in and out of there and three departments. there's There was no reason for the other department. Well, the state police... That was a reason for them to be there because they were called there to assist with that investigation. And then you had the county that was there, and then you had Lone Oak City that was there. There's no reason for Lone Oak City to have been there. Two officers from Lone Oak City was there. So somebody had to have called them. They were probably monitoring the radio and... Heard the call go out and heard that it was a triple homicide and went out there to see what was going on. There was no search warrant that I could find to go in on that crime scene. Once they go in to that house and find out that nobody else needs medical attention, they're obligated to go out of the house and uh, get a search warrant to go back into it again. That is not a difficult search warrant because they saw three bodies laying on the floor in there. But once they and they went through the house and saw the everything that had happened in that house, such as the uh, uh, opening of the drawers and the uh, clothes and stuff thrown around the house, so they should have gotten out and got a search warrant or got consent to search. There was one person that could have gave consent to search on that particular case, and that was Heath stocks. It could have happened.
0: Why do you think it didn't happen? I don't know why it didn't happen.
3: You know, that's something that they'll have to answer. I don't know why it didn't happen. I've always gotten a search warrant when I have a body or something inside of a house. I've always gotten a search warrant. And this is just highly unusual. State police knew to get a search warrant to go back into the house But nobody had a search warrant to start off with. And it makes me wonder if that's what was going on in the courts, that they all knew that there was a problem with this because the search warrant was never obtained.
0: When you refer to what's going on in the courts, what do you mean by that?
3: What I mean is maybe the attorneys saw that there was no search warrant issued on this particular case, and they may have felt like we need to plead this case out and get this case out of here because there was no search warrants issued, which means that anything they obtained from inside that house would not be admissible in the court of law. Jack Walls was allowed to stay at that house when they left the house 15 hours later. They got Jack Walls to stay at the house, to watch the house, to make sure that nobody was going to break into it and stuff like that and steal the stuff that was in there. And uh, he agreed to do that. The uh, sheriff's department, I don't think they knew anything about Jack's dealings with Heath and a lot of other young boys and stuff that was out there in in that neighborhood that uh, was going on. I don't think that they knew about that yet. And it wasn't until June and July that that started coming out.
0: So you had all these people in and out for 15 hours. And then Jack comes in and stays there. And this all happens before the search warrant.
3: Yes. Yes. And that's a good point. Because I can't find a search warrant. You know, if they had one, great. But I can't find a search warrant. There's nothing that was given to anybody or mentioned in the, in any of the, the reports and stuff that I've seen that there was a search warrant. And what I don't understand is why... The attorneys that was representing Heath didn't bring that issue up.
0: I thought it was interesting, too, in the Arkansas State Police records that there was a memo written from Hollingsworth to Captain Williams saying that they didn't have the crime scene video anymore, that they had maintained the case file for several months. There was no one working at that office. The access probably wasn't controlled, but they doubt that it was taken. Is that odd to have nobody monitoring crime scene evidence?
3: Uh, yes, that's unusual because when you have evidence, you turn it into a particular location, which you call an evidence room, and it's it's kept in that evidence room. Usually, things with for homicides are not released. Everything on a homicide case stays in the evidence room. It's unusual that something came up missing.
0: We also noticed a lot of inaccuracies in the dates when we went through these FOIA documents. For example, one of the documents from an officer that night was dated 11697, which would have been a day before the murders happened. So that obviously was incorrect. There were also later documents we read talking about the crime scene video being completed on 11799, not 97. So it just didn't seem like it was a lot of attention to detail.
1: We all make typos. We all write the wrong thing. The other day I wrote that the year was 2027 on a document that I was signing. So, yes, it can happen. Obviously, everybody's done it. But like you said, in such a critical situation, you would think a little bit of extra care would be taken to get things exactly right. You would think so, because knowing
0: that this is probably going to turn into a major investigation down the road, going to trial, all that. They'd have to have these dates, and they'd have to be pretty accurate. It was really interesting, too, because when we talked to Mark Buffalo, being a reporter at that time, he actually went to the crime scene the day after the murders happened. And he gives a little insight, too, on kind of what it was like and what was going on.
2: I guess it was the day after that the murders happened. I got a phone call. From a, from a friend who had told me what had happened. My first reaction was, is there anybody at home when it happened? Did they have a son? I was not aware of Heath at that time. Heath graduated high school the 94-95 school year, which was my last year in college. I knew who Heather was because of her being a cheerleader and seeing her at football and basketball games. So when I got the phone call about what had happened, I drove to where the Stocks live there on Johnson Road in uh, Furlow outside of Lone Oak. And, of course, there were po- uh, police officers and everything.
0: So you actually then drove to the house and night of the murders?
2: It so was the day after.
0: But what was that like? Can you maybe describe what you remember about that?
2: I had never really handled uh, a story or anything else like that. I ended up talking to our, uh, one of our other reporters with the paper, and I, I think I saw him out there because he lived in Cabot. It was just surreal. You, you don't think of something like a triple murder happening in rural Lone County, Arkansas. But it's just not one of those things that you can fathom that's going to happen in, happen where you live.
0: Sure, I'm sure that was shocking for you.
2: Absolutely.
0: So, when you went out there, then the next day, was there a lot of activity? Were there a lot of police there? How did that? How did it look?
2: Of course, there was crime tape up. There was still, you know, people going through things. Investigators out there. I think I saw uh, Sheriff Charlie Martin out there. I just remember us going back. A lot of the media people from uh, the statewide newspaper, the TV stations. Uh, we all ended up, like I said, back at the courthouse uh, just kind of waiting around. I remember uh, me and our reporter were talking to, to some of the people there, you know, just getting a feel of what exactly was going on. You just didn't expect it, something like that to happen in a nice little rural area. It was mind-blowing.
1: Going back to the crime scene, like we've mentioned, the bodies of Heath's family were found, his mom, Barbara, his sister, Heather, and his dad, Joe. And they were all found in the kitchen. Heather and Barbara were right next to each other. They were lying parallel, although they were facing different directions. That's just really sad to think about. Obviously,
0: overall, the entire situation of of the family being murdered, especially with Heather and Barbara laying next to each other and Heather holding the phone.
1: We talked so extensively about the type of mother that Barbara was. Obviously, she had to have been just overcome with fear about what was happening. I'm sure they all were. I feel like the fact that she was right next to Heather kind of shows that protection or her last bit of motherhood. You mentioned that the phone was... It was actually lying on Heather's neck or chest area. And that supports that she was the one who made those two 911 calls that were hang ups. So let's talk a little bit more about that lack of search warrant.
0: Not only did you have all these people going in and out of the house, but then, like we mentioned previously, Jack stayed there. So you allow someone to stay in a house where three people were murdered, they stay there to secure the crime scene or whatever reasoning he had to stay there. But to me, that would potentially contaminate the crime scene. So any way you look at it,
1: not a good idea. We've talked about the level of trust that the boys had and a little bit about the level of trust from the other people in the town. But this shows people of authority also trusted Jack enough to leave him at a crime scene, an active crime scene investigation. And nobody blinked an eye at it. When your dad's a judge,
0: apparently that's a pretty powerful thing because that last name went far. And like you said, he had gotten everyone in town to believe that he was this great guy, someone you could trust, someone you could leave at a crime scene and it would be okay.
1: It kind of makes me think about what we just heard about in the last episode from Kip when he was talking about how people like Jack Kind of end up overdoing it where, you know, they're just trying to fly under the radar, but they end up shining a light on themselves because they're, like I said, overdoing it. And to me, this kind of seems like it might be one of those cases because Jack might be just trying to show up and be a helping hand in the investigation. It ends up looking pretty suspicious that somebody who had been abusing the suspect for over a decade is now at the crime scene. And trusted and left there. watch over it so the investigation is underway and at this point the family members are needing to be notified both janice and bonnie told us how they were the ones who received that notification phone call and then in turn they had to both let their parents know which were also joe and barbara's parents janice barbara's sister
0: shares what it was like for her to receive that call
4: Went to bed. The phone rang. My husband answered, and it was—I don't know if it was Lenoir Sheriff Department or the State Police. Somebody told him that there had—they had been killed. And um, I—we uh, have some cousins that are next door neighbors, and I was just—I was in disbelief. And I called my cousin and asked her if there was anything going on over at Joe and Barbara's, and then she—she she told me. Um. That they had been murdered. And so um, they had, my parents were older and uh, they hadn't told them yet. And so we were to go to Lone Oak to tell my parents, and we did. Robbie went with me. And then the police showed up too. And I I believe the pastor was with them, if I recall. It's, you know, being over 25 years ago. And they were in disbelief too. They, we just didn't know what to think. And then they were looking for Heath. They didn't know where Heath was. It was just chaos. Really, there wasn't any suspects. We were at a total loss. It was just shock. We, did, we didn't have any idea until um, the police said that Heath was a suspect.
0: How'd you feel when you found that out? that
4: he was responsible. Yeah, we were devastated. We just were in disbelief.
0: Bonnie, Joe's sister, shared her experience that night with
5: us as well. They came and woke me up out of a sound sleep. Uh, I went over and woke up Mom and Daddy and had no clue, you know, I didn't know, had nothing, Mm -mm. never suspected he.
0: What, what did you? How? What were your feelings when you found out that, it, that that Heath was
5: responsible? Uh, I think total shock. Just it's like, how on earth did this happen? How could this be? Uh, I know that Joe and Barbara both loved Heath beyond belief, and what could have? And I know Heather was. You know, they were so wrapped up in each other, and what could possibly? lead to that it was like no no clue and just the shock value I think I for the next two or three weeks I just kind of walked through space I didn't really know what was going on I'm sure yeah Yeah, and it was it was that was okay to be insulated so that I didn't have to deal with it Mm -hmm. with you know and it was like a dream I mean was like this this can't be happening Mm -hmm. it's like this is not real
0: Can you imagine how hard that is? First of all, just to get that call that your sibling had been murdered, but then you have to go wake up your parents and be the person that breaks that news to them. I'm sure it was just a feeling of shock.
1: Absolutely. You hear so many times about people saying that it was a call that they never wanted to receive. And as we were sitting there listening to each of them tell their story, I was just trying to put myself in their position and into their mindset and just how completely out of left field it was to get that call and to be woken up in the middle of the night and told something like that. Where do you go from there? It really meant a lot to me that they were so
0: open with how that night happened for them, what they experienced and what they thought, because that has to be so hard to relive over and over again. So meanwhile, you have Heath, who has been picked up by the police and taken in for questioning. It's now January 18th, 1.10 p.m., and Heath is interviewed by Steve Finch and Mark Hollingsworth, both investigators. An interesting point here, too, is Steve Finch was good friends with Joe Stocks. The families went to church together. They both lived in furlough. So they were pretty close. We reached out to Steve Finch, but he did not return our request for comment. So after that interview, they decided to take him in for a polygraph. So at 3 p.m., that interview was terminated, and he was taken to the Arkansas State Police Headquarters in Little Rock.
1: At 4.41 p.m. on January 18th, the polygraph examination takes place.
3: I don't know how he was taken away, but it can be questioned that he was detained at that particular time. He went in and and did his polygraph, and he was advised of his rights by the state police, advised him of his rights, which was great. And, I mean, they did it right and took a statement from him. He told the state police in the presence of Mr. Finch, I believe it was, Deputy Finch. Docs didn't uh, get any sleep or anything before that. That is something that you would think about if they asked you that question, have you gotten any sleep? That's one of the questions a polygraph examiner will ask you, is have you been taking any drugs if you had a good night's sleep the night before or or that night that they got him and stuff like that. And that would have been a question that may have I'm not a polygraph examiner, but that may have barred them from doing a polygraph exam on him to start with. He admits to killing his father. He doesn't come right out and say, I killed my mother and my sister.
0: So because we have questions on how the polygraph works, to get an, an expert opinion, we reached out to Kip to ask him if he would talk to us about the polygraph examination review the documents, and talk to us about how a, a standard polygraph examination works.
6: I do test people because we have to go over suitability for testing with every client that we ever have for ethical reasons. And some people aren't suitable for testing. If you want a good night of sleep, you know, eat as normal, take your meds as normal, those kinds of things. So I go, so it's like noon, I'm testing a guy at noon, let's say, a guy or a gal. I'll say, let's go back 24 hours in your life here. Today's Sunday. Let's go back to noon yesterday. That was 24 hours ago. How many hours of sleep would you estimate you've had since noon yesterday? And most of them will tell me, you know, seven or eight, something like that, usually. Some will, see, somewhere in that range, usually people are. And then I just ask them next, I get a, and we videotape everything. Do you feel you're rested enough to take this, go through this process? And then you tell them how long it's going to take, generally. Everybody's a little bit different, but it looks like they were with, uh, for two hours and 15 minutes. Which is, I'm sure that's pretty. That's probably you know about right for when you're doing a diagnostic forensic polygraph interview. But I think that included their whole pre-test and post-test. So what a lot of people don't understand is that Heath was, not, you know, Heath is not attached to the instrument the whole time they're interviewing him. The only time they're on the polygraph is probably ten minutes of that whole thing. So the rest mm-hmm. of that was the pre-test information they're trying to get out of him, so they can set up their questions. They review all the test questions. They review the results with him, and then they go into their interrogation. It sounds like what happened with him, which is pretty standard. So this was called what, they, what we call a forensic polygraph. Uh, Heath was a suspect in a crime. So we call it diagnostic or forensic. So they're trying to use the polygraph as a tool to ensure that they're following the right leads or narrow down their suspect pool, those kinds of things. In Heath's situation, they kind of went and found him right away at a former girlfriend's house. So they were probably very suspicious that everybody died in his family except for him, so they were looking for him, whether to ensure he's safe. I don't know what the dynamic said, or they thought he was a suspect immediately. So they found him, and, you know, he has the absolute right to refuse to take a polygraph. It sounds like he wasn't represented by an attorney or anything like that. I would tell anybody, you know, always get an attorney and, and follow your attorney's advice on that. Because, obviously, law enforcement, they're all working together, and, you know, they can certainly use that against you if they want to. But anyway, it's called a forensic polygraph. They're trying to see if, you know, Heath is going to tell them anything. And then they use the results, which I do see mm-hmm. that they say he failed it. I think it says essentially deceptive. We call it uh, deception-indicated DI, which his, he's saying the same thing, but I see the guy's report says essentially deceptive. Um, and then they start you know, getting into their interrogation with him, and he continues to talk to them. It looks to me they ask, you know, very valid questions on the polygraph, very direct questions, so I don't see any issues with the, what they asked him or anything. So, but, yeah, it looks like a valid polygraph to me. Mm-hmm. The only thing I see is, yeah, you only got four hours of sleep. A lot of times if the cops let the guy go, he does get an attorney. And then by that point, he's decide not to talk. So that was probably their only chance to get him to talk. And so from their point of view, I totally get why they try to get him to do a polygraph really quickly.
0: I had a question on that, too. When I was reading through their questions and they asked, did you shoot either one of your family members? Did you cause the death of your family? So is it weird that they didn't say, did you kill your mother? Did you kill your father? Did you shoot your sister? Or did they just lump it all together?
6: Yeah, no, I, that's a great point. Um, yeah, they could have. Even they could have done what we call a breakout testing. They could have focused each individual test. Again, that would take more time with the client, but. It looks like they went with more of the general one, because if he would have failed that question, that means he at least shot one of them. If he didn't have anything to do with any of the three, then he should have passed the question. But yeah, I see what you're saying. They took a, they kind of asked a general, you know, did you shoot any of your family? I can look at the question right now, number five. Mm-hmm. Did you shoot either one of your family members? Not yeah. the greatest question in the world as far as how it's structured there, but I, I'm not in the brain of the, of the uh, examiners at that point. I can see why he went with more of an overall general, because if a person is being completely honest on any of them, that person should pass that question. But yeah, they're implying that he killed all three of them in, the, in these questions. That's exactly right. So the number seven says, did you yourself cause the death of your family? Because again, he could have killed, te- you know, let's just hypothetically say he killed one of them, but somebody else killed two of them. He could technically say no to that and be telling the truth because he caused the death of one of the family members, but not the entire family. So that's a great, great point, actually. The examiner could have broke it out. You know, did you kill your dad? What I would, If I would have asked these questions, I would have asked on the night of January 18th, did you shoot either one of your family members? You know, hypothetically, he could have accidentally shot his dad when he was 10 years old, which would be a completely different scenario that was accidental and he'd shot him that night. But not because he just asked him, did you shoot either one of your family There's no qualifier at the beginning on the date. With that being said, I don't know if they discuss that thoroughly when they reviewed the test questions. That's kind of stuff that I don't know. Sure. But generally, we put that little qualifier on the beginning of the question, you know, on or about January 18th or whatever the date was. Did you shoot your father in the kitchen or whatever? And then you ask these other follow-up questions as well. So they, they get asked the same questions, reworded essentially several times, which is how a polygraph works. But, yeah, you bring up a great point about the overall the family member questionnaire. But, again, that would take more time. Uh, he only got four hours of sleep. They were probably trying to just get as much information as they could while they had him and while he was willing to talk.
1: After the polygraph test is concluded, Heath is informed that he failed and he ends up giving a verbal confession to Alex Finger and Steve Finch. Later that night at 7.08 p.m., he is
0: interviewed again then by Mark Hollingsworth and Steve Finch, both investigators. He confesses to killing his father still doesn't directly confess to killing his mother and sister.
1: When they ask if he killed his mother and sister, he says that he was just shooting. He doesn't say it there. And then in later interviews, he had said that he just shooting
0: and doesn't remember anything. He clearly says he shot his father, but he is very vague
1: around the circumstances regarding his sister and mother. He just starts crying when he's asked, did you kill your mother and sister? He cries and he says, I love them. And he says, I tried to bring
0: them back. I tried. I prayed to God to try to bring them back.
1: So two days later, on January 20th, Steve Finch interviews Heath by himself. Again, Heath admits to shooting his father. He doesn't directly admit to shooting his mother and sister. Steve Finch ends up handwriting Heath's confession without Heath present.
3: I think that when Steve Finch wrote this confession that he put himself at jeopardy of people questioning what had occurred because he hand-wrote this out and then took it and had he sign it. That is unusual that you would do something like that, especially on such an important case like this is. I think that it's so unusual that even the state police wrote in their notes that this confession that Steve Finch wrote did not have any witnesses, So they even found it to be a little bit confusing as to why he would do something like that. I think that Finch caused himself to be questioned on this statement. It was almost like it was written in a way that that you are confessing to everything that had occurred there, and it's covering everything. I mean, That is not written out by a distraught person. You know what I mean? You have somebody that's feeling bad about killing his dad anyways, and it's written out to cover everything that happened on this case. Nothing was left out. It covered everything that was on this case. And that's exactly what you needed to go into court with.
0: I noticed that because on that handwritten confession, it was three pages, I believe. And like you said, it covered so many different things.
3: Yes. Yes. It covers everything. It didn't leave anything out. I mean, it's it's almost like it was written for the courts, not for Heath.
0: So he went ahead and wrote out that hand confession on his own and then had Heath sign it and said it was just everything they had talked about. So here you go, sign an initial, and Heath signed and initialed. It's his dad's friend. I'm sure he trusted him.
1: Yeah, he's got to be somebody who Heath is familiar with. Like you said, he's his dad's friend, so he's probably been around him multiple times and probably felt a little bit reassured that he was around somebody that he knew. Thinking this guy probably has my best
0: interest at heart. During all of this, Heath continues to stay
1: silent about Jack. He thinks that at this point that Jack is going to still come to his rescue, that Jack is going to somehow change the situation and obviously he has reason to think that because he was so involved with the Hogan trial behind the scenes he saw everything that Jack did all of his connections how it played out for Jack he's also got that loyalty still to Jack where he doesn't want to betray him he is keeping his mouth shut about the abuse so at this point the abuse that has been going on from Jack to all of these boys, including Heath, is not even on anybody's radar because it's still a secret. Nobody knows about it. Nobody has any idea about what Heath has been experiencing. And Heath is still holding out hope that Jack is going to somehow help him out of this situation. In the next episode, we will continue to discuss the investigation of the Stocks murders We will also discuss the legal team that worked both sides of the case and find out how everything played out.
0: Will the local lawyers be welcoming and willing to work with the team that's brought in from Little Rock?
1: Will Heath's family be open to working with the outside lawyers as well?
0: In hindsight, would the outcome have changed had the abuse by Jack Walls come to light during the investigation? Life Without, the untold story of Heath Stocks, Is brought to you by Watts Productions
1: and Block Party. Produced by Dylan Edward Allen, Colby Watts, and Katie Anthony. Archival materials
0: provided by the Stocks Family, the Harris Family, Samantha Jones, and the Freedom of Information Act. Music by Colin Thomas. All information in this podcast is based on interviews from people close to the case never-before-seen insider documents, legal documents, FOIA documents, victim impact statements, and sworn affidavits. All parties mentioned in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty. For more information on this podcast and Heath Stocks, visit heathstockspodcast.com. For more information about the groundbreaking Scouts film, which features Heath Stocks, visit
5: scoutsdocumentary.com.